<laughs> my name is Brad McFarland. And my name is Kim McFarland. We started here at the inception of when we were in the school in Waldorf, which was... Well, they had been meeting. We came down in 1980, 80, I believe, yes. Yeah. 1980, and we saw this church being built. We were here for the groundbreaking. Well, we started up in Temple Hills, and I believe it was 1973. Under it, Pastor Dixon. Under Pastor Dixon. And we loved it. See, I love my church. What I love about Grace Church, uh, one word, love. Love and, and, and uh, realness. Mostly it's, it's just the love you feel when you come through the doors. There have been so many times that Grace has walked through um, difficult times of our season. Brad's cancer was probably the most recent, which was seven, eight years ago, where the cards and the meals and the prayer and the visits meant so much and gave me so much peace. We couldn't, well, let me rephrase that. God would have gotten us through it, but God used grace to help lighten our load. One of my instances was in 1982, we invited Pastor Thornley and Cindy over for dinner, and I had no idea that the conversation was going to lead into the Lord, but basically, I was led to the Lord by Jeff that night, and it was rather intriguing because I had been coming to Grace weekly for about nine years and was always skeptical about giving my life to Christ. But somehow my heart was moved that night to do it. And some people might have fireworks that go off, but with me, it just turned out to be uh, a, a peaceful, easy feeling uh, in my heart. And, uh, and it was just like a seed that over the years has grown and been fruitful. But that was one of my one of my great times with Grace. Walking better together in forgiveness and um, and showing God's love to one another has always been here, and I just hope it continues and grows deeper with each other. Morning, everyone. It's great to have you back here at Grace Church Waldorf. We're real excited that you are here. We've been working on the last five weeks. This is our last week in Better Together. We had um, Brad and Kim share a little bit from, they actually attend the first service, and we wanted to get you an opportunity to meet someone from the first service because you don't get a chance to see them uh, during that time because you're here on the second service. And sharing a story about what God has done through their lives in the last 25 to 30 years. And interestingly enough, you see that it was a person who took nine years to come to faith in Jesus. 
I mean, it took nine years to attend a church weekly, and then finally it said, you know what, I'm going to trust in Christ. And so it was it's kind of a cool story to see that we truly are better together. If you see this morning when we talked about and shared about Bob Grote, uh, Steve just mentioned that he was having complications this morning and could not breathe. He was having a difficult time breathing. That three or four people were able to stand up and two of our elders went in the back to pray and to encourage him to go to the hospital. And he had just lost his wife. And so that is an example of how we are better together when we understand each other, when we can work together, help each other, build each other up through difficult times, through even adversity this morning, and how God even intervened by allowing the proper people to be here today, potentially save a life. And that's kind of what we are talking about, about being better together. So the last four weeks, we were, we were talking about in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. We've been talking about uh, four areas and we're coming to a fifth area. The first was that God is relational, that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, he's relational. And because he's relational through the Trinity, we too can be relationally uh, connected with God. And then through that, we learn to be relational with one another. Then we talked about reverential, having an awe of God. And all of his presence, the general revelation, but yet the special revelation of his son and recognizing who he is, what he's done. Because when I was growing up young, I would always look up into the skies and wonder, who is God? Why would he create all of this? For what purpose was it for me? I would just look up, think about it for about 15 seconds and go back to doing what I wanted to do. But when I got saved and trusted in Christ at 20 years old, my life changed, transformed, moved in a way where now I understood the God who created the heavens and the earth created me to have a relationship with him. And even this past week when I was, uh, you know, we're at our home, we're fixing up our home and we have certain companies that come by and ADT came by and I told him I was a pastor of a church, that's why we moved and he says, I'm a religious man. I said, sir, I'm not religious, but I have a relationship with God. And I looked at him. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's what you meant. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, that's what I mean. But yet, what we have to understand, it's relationship. And so God encourages us to have that relationship with him. And then it's God showing forth in the first century church about being redemptive. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine but often we could even say what's mine is mine's and what's yours is mine. We can kind of act like that because everything's mine. But with this church and the way that God used it and worked at it, he said, no, what's yours is really your brothers or your sisters. So whatever you and I possess is really not ours in the first place. It's God's. And we've experienced that as well in these past few weeks at our home. With many of you were coming by and helping us with, and taking of your time to be redemptive toward Joya and I, and we really appreciate that. But that's something you're doing for each other. As the body of Christ, you're doing that. You can do that for a neighbor. You can do that for someone that you know who's a family member. Then fourthly, we, we talked about last week being restorative. We talked about what God restored us from in the state of sin to now relationship with God through his son and how we can be restorative. And now this last week, we're talking about having one mind. I don't know about you, and maybe some of you don't recall, and honestly, I don't either, because um, I wasn't a Peanuts cartoon fan. 
Uh, I was more of a Justice League guy. I like the Avengers. I like uh, Superman. I like, uh, yeah, yeah, shout out, I know, Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. I used to sit there every day after school, WPIX, watch Spider-Man. Um, Incredible Hulk was the real deal with, you know, um, when it was on TV, CBS or NBC, we'd watch Lou Frigno in a green, you know, just that green outfit. And I'd be like, Arr. and I'd get all excited. And I was a fan. I loved the Justice League, but I didn't care for much for the Peanuts. But the Peanuts cartoon was funny. I, I came across one. It says this, that Lucy demanded that Linus change the TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. What makes you think you can walk right, walk right in here and take over, says Linus. Lucy replies by saying, these five fingers. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this in a single unit, they're forming a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want, asks Linus. <laughs> Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> and so behold, we understand that one finger may not be able to do much, but when they come together, I know that fist very well. Hey, fist, I've seen you before. And that fist used to be a powerhouse when I was a kid as well. And I know for many of you siblings, you start waving your fist at your brother or your sister, wondering, you wait till mom and dad get out of the room. I'm going to get you. And so it's like, and you know those five fingers when they come together, it just forms that. But think about it like a snowflake. An individual snowflake is one of nature's most fragile things, but when it sticks together and it grows, all of a sudden it becomes a stronger unit. It can create chaos or it can create fun for young people who can sled and tube all day long. Um, it doesn't matter who it, whatever it is, but snow, when it comes together, it can cause great fun or great chaos. And see, that's the beauty of the, the body of Christ individually, we're really a corporate unit. Individually, we may make an impact, but when we come together, we're stronger together. We're better together. More hands create more work. Uh, more work creates more expansion. When we're, to, when we're alone and we are introspectively looking at ourselves and caught, catching ourselves depressed at times or looking too much in, we can implode. But if we work together, united, forming together and bonding, then we can explode. And an explosion expands. An implosion just falls in. Eric Jones and I have been spending some time together, and I love the twins, Uriah and Malachi. I get to see them by the way they wear their hair. That's the only way I can tell them apart. And I walked by them and said, yo, wonder twin powers activate, form of an ice cube. I was like, what in the world? If you guys remember Justice League, ice cube, what can an ice cube do? But if an ice cube falls, and many of them, it can cause a slippery floor and hurt somebody. And it can cause them to get off balance. Or if they're an ocean, they can be roaring like an ocean and just flood out an area. But the beauty of it is that when many come together and expand, the beauty of God is the expansion of the skies or the creation. 
When we come together, we can be better together when we form together in unity. And that's what the church was doing. At the very beginning, when we were talking about in the last four weeks, we are talking about how they came together at the inauguration of the church age and the beauty of God, starting it off with three men. He was 12, down to three, Peter, James, and John, went back to the 12, then there were 70 in the, in the, in the Gospels, and then and now we're going to find out it's even grown even further. From 70 to now, they have 120. And in the church, we understand too that when people are captivated and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, great things happen because people come in one mind with one common interest, an agreement that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And the beauty of God and the beauty of God showing forth when he changes a life that is chaotic It's helpless and it's hopeless and it's lost. God takes a life and he gives it life and changes a person. I'm a testimony of that. Sharing stories with people we're getting to know at the church. Slowly sharing some things I've done in the past to know that the transformation of God, the power of the Holy Spirit that changes a life, he can change me, he can change you. But we have to believe him for him. That's why the Holy Spirit is the agent to reach the lost. He was the agent throughout the book of Acts. And he was the agent that was bringing forth the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person in work, and bringing forth the kingdom of God moving forward, even today, 2,000 years plus later. 21st century, because as we have a lens in the 21st century, we're looking back to the first century saying, wow, they came together. They worked together. What they owned was someone else's. If I had a table saw, I'd give it to the other person. If I had some nice drills that I just bought, I'd say, here, you can have my drills. You can keep them. But what do you mean? I just spent $200. It doesn't matter. God could replenish that. But the beauty of the redemptive work of God is giving what's ours and making it someone else's. And that's the beauty of God. So look with me to Acts chapter 1, because there was something that they did when they came together in one mind, was we're going to see what happened in the first chapter before we get to chapter 2 and 4. Verse 12, look with me to chapter 1, Acts, verse 12. Chapter 1, Acts, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And so we, we see that um, when they had entered Jerusalem, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot. And Judas, son of James, were there. The twelve there were walking with him, saw him, lived with him, communed with Jesus, ate with him, hung out with him, were men. And then it goes in verse 14. All these continued together in prayer with one mind. It wasn't that they liked certain things in common. They didn't have certain preferences. But they were together in prayer in one mind. Together with the women, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a gathering of about 120 people. And he continued to say, look with me to chapter 2, verse 46, as we've been going through this passage. Look at what verse 46, we're going to look at the word one mind. And day by day, and I'm reading in the ESV, day by day, when we're looking at this, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. So when they came together in one mind, the church grew. Now, what does it mean to have one mind? Well, let me just share this, a few other versions here. When you see in the Bible, they have other versions. Um, if you have never opened up a Bible and you're here for the first time, you have a page right there, 910. You can just look at it if you'd like. But there are different versions, many different versions that are laid out there, 50, 60 versions or plus. But the New English translation says this, gathered together by a common consent. Then the NIV says meet together. HCSB says devoted themselves to meeting together. I like that word devote because it goes back to verse 42 when they devoted themselves. Even the KJV says gathered in one accord. So if you have that silly old joke about where's their Honda in the Bible? Oh, here is the verse in one accord, okay? So you can have that one. So if you ever want to do a little ta-ta, it's a joke. Okay, but the word translated one accord, one mind. In the Greek, it really gives the idea of mutual consent, coming together in agreement. So you're seeing that. The NET gives a, a rendered version that I really like because the, one, the coming together is a theme throughout the book. It's not only chapter 1, verse 14 that we just read, or 2, verse 1. 424, we're going to talk about that passage today. Chapter 5, verse 12, and 1525. They came with one mind. Even at Jerusalem Council, when they were determining what was the message of the gospel, they came together, even though the Jews didn't like the fact that the law was removed, that the keeping of the law was necessary for salvation. It was called grace plus the law. But you really don't need the law when you have grace. Law, when we keep the law, that doesn't keep us right with God. But it's only through the person and work of Jesus that we can come in right relationship with God. So the beauty of it is that we had to have one mind. So even though they had differences and didn't like certain things, they still came together with one mind. Now, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes with the body of Christ, we're different people. I've mentioned this often. We have different backgrounds, different races, different subcultures, suburban, rural, rural suburban, suburban, urban, urban, inner city, going back to just plain old rural. It doesn't matter where you come from, we're all different. But what I've learned over the years is that I want to learn something new. This morning, Michelle Averick's daughter, who teaches in Chicago, teaches to Chinese children in Chicago. Really cool, kindergarten to fourth grade, she teaches Chinese. I'm like, wow. I said, could you write something to me in Chinese? So she's writing it like it's English. I'm like, wow. And I looked at it, I said, could you just write hello? And she was explaining to me what the letters meant. Even one little letter symbol that was identifying the meaning of hello. And I was magnetized by that. I just moved by it. I was just impressed. Then I said, can you also write goodbye? So I have it there. And I'm going to study it. Why? Because I want to learn another background, another language, because God created us all as nation people. I want to learn about someone who's different from me. I've done that for years when I was at Bible college. And when I would go around and speak, I'd always learn something new. But these are, this is a criteria that I'd use to try to connect with the body of Christ. I'm going to share with you my criteria. Three things. One is I always try to find someone who's like me. Preferences, common likes, and personality. It's always good to have someone there with you. 
where you could just have fun together, right? But I'll stop there. I find someone who is opposite of me. Have a couple things we like, maybe some sports, but different in personality, different in approach, different in many other ways. They might be in a rural setting. I want to get to know that person. Why? So God can challenge me and help me to be more balanced. Because you got enough of Bruno's with one Bruno. You don't need another Bruno. And Bruno's a strange name in and of itself. So, you know, you just got to live with that. But then the third thing is I find someone who's got a different background than me, ethnic background, subculture. Definitely ethnic because I want to learn the different nations and the different backgrounds. I want to learn the cultural settings. I want to learn why they eat when they eat or why they pause when they pause. In Italy, as Italians, um, we eat at 12 o'clock and we take a pausa, which is pause, for about two hours, three hours, and then we go back to work at four. Now, I didn't ever work in Italy, but when I was there for three months, the third time I went there, I was taken back. I'm like, now see, I'm American. You work all day and then you eat at night. They're like, no, you eat at 8 o'clock at night. I'm like, 8 o'clock at night? Isn't that bad for your digestion? They're like, no, 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 it's just part of life. When I worked at a pizzeria, we did the same thing. The Italians, when I worked here in America in a pizzeria, they did the same thing. We'd eat at 12 o'clock at night. After we were done all day working, we'd eat a big meal at 1 o'clock in the morning. I wonder why I had indigestion all the time, because it was just eating late at night. But it was a different part of our culture. Even in American culture, I had a transition to my Italian culture. It was two different cultures. And it's important for us to understand and grasp one another because here were the Jews of the first century where there were Jews and they found this new faith, but they had common interests only in one thing, in Jesus. They didn't have a common interest in their preferences or their personalities more in their pastimes, but they had a common interest in Christ. And so I asked the question, like, what, what, there are three questions that I have about having one mind. So I'm going to ask you these questions. Two of the first questions actually connect together. So the first question is this, when was the last time you saw God working in your life or in someone else's life? Now I understand that because many young teenagers, young people think, well, this is my mother and father's faith. This really isn't mine. I don't really have to do much to it. See, I disagree. I don't think the teens are our future. I think they are the church. They need to be the church. They need to be all about the church. But we who are older need to mentor them, care for them, lead them, and not expect them to be what we want them to be, but try to meet them where they're at and to love on them and to learn what they like in their interests. I'm working on that because I don't like to fish, but my son loves to fish. So I got to learn how to fish. Problem is you got to be quiet when you fish, and I talk too much. So that's the problem. So when you're like, so son, what did you say? Be quiet. I, we got to fish. The, you know, we're not going to catch any fish. That's okay, son. I just want to spend time with you. I don't care about the fishing. But he's like, but son, I'm, I'm dad, dad, I, I, I want to spend time with you, but I really want to fish. I want to catch some fish. And so it's like, okay, well, uh, I don't like to fish, but I guess I got to be quiet. <laughs> Two, ten seconds later, I'm still talking. So the idea is that fishing's hard for me, but I got to learn. But how many of us? See, today I asked the question to you, when's the last time you saw God work in your life? Two years ago? Ten years ago? Five years ago? Seven weeks ago? Two minutes ago? See, God wants to show us that he has something so that we can report what he's done. See, so often we're not seeing what God's doing or work in us because we're concerned that we're bothering him or we're disturbing him. 
But see, these who were in the first century, they didn't know what God was doing. They had no clue at that very point when they were ministering, they were seeing the church moving forward. They had no idea what God was doing at work. The Holy Spirit was leading them. He was the agent. But as it was unfolding, God was showing them and they were reporting. Now, in chapter 3, I talked about a few weeks ago about a lame man who was healed. Then he got saved. And Peter and John were able to do that. Peter spoke to him. And then what happened was the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the officials, the religious people found out. So they imprisoned them for a short period of time. Then they brought them out. And when they brought them out, they wanted to confront them with what had happened. Peter and John and James, they didn't know what to do. They just knew that God was leading them to the temple at the beautiful gate, and he led him to heal someone. And then, lo and behold, the power of God, the supernatural work of God came about, and now they're here in chapter 4, and they're about to report to these high officials who could manipulate the situation and cause Rome to imprison them for a while. So you can sense when you read this or you ask that question, you have to see what's happening. But in chapter 4, verse 15, read with me here. It says this. It says, when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name, in this name. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's, that's an important uh, uh, paraphrase there, seen and heard, a phrase. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Why? Because what they've seen and heard, they reported and they couldn't deny it because it happened. And then it goes on to say this, finding no way to punish them because of other people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man in whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, meaning God did a supernatural, impossible thing. And see, that's what, so what did they report? What did James and John and Peter report? Well, Peter and John did this. They have seen the Lord Jesus Christ minister to the people in the region. In the Gospels, before Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father and ascended into him after resurrection, they saw God's hand through his servant, Jesus, the God-man, the incarnate Christ. They had seen the Lord Jesus perform miracles, which is a demonstration of his deity, that he is the incarnate God, that he is a second person of the Trinity. And then they have seen the relationship of the Father and the Son, the book of John. They had seen Christ suffering on the cross. The apostles have seen the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ. One of the stipulations for the apostles were to witness his life and the resurrection of Christ. That's why Paul was an apostle, because he saw the vision of Christ. And so we go to the second question, when was the last time you heard about, what, about God working in someone else's life? I don't know about you, but when I hear God at work in the life of a believer, when someone testifies of what God has done in them, it shows me, it tells me that my brother or sister is with me, that we're better together, and we know what God has done in our lives. 
And we are bound together like snowflake upon snowflake, working together. We're stronger together. When I know that my brother or sister has experienced and being able to see the transformation of the Holy Spirit in their lives as God has shown me what he's done with me. All of a sudden, we're binding together in spirit, lifting up together in prayer, building one another up. Our faith is alive. It's not something we hold on 10, 15 years ago. It's something that's going on right now. It's alive. It's working. God is working in my life. I'm praying. I'm seeking. I'm chasing. I'm hunting after him, pursuing him with relationship, with passion, to try to walk with him and to love him and to enjoy him. Why? Because I want to report, because I want to share what I've heard and see what God has done in my life. I want others to see. So when they see, they're going to say, wow, there's something different about you. And when they see that there's something different about me, I can testify of the, of the, of the work of God in my life. But I can if I'm not spending that time, if I'm not in this word, if I'm not, if I come to church, come to a building, and I'm not seeing that happen, then I'm hanging on to something from years ago. I don't know about you, but as you can tell, I like to eat. And if I only ate one meal a day, I'd be starving. And I need to run for the cupboards, look for something to eat to get through the next hour. Because especially as tired as I am, I need something to get me through. And if I just depended on yesterday's meal, I would never make it through the next day. And the same thing with God. I can't get through another day if I'm not spending and chasing and seeking for my spiritual food. Because if I don't, I'm going to fall away. And if I, do, I know that sometimes that happens. There are moments when I, I, I forget that I have to eat. And when I feel full and satisfied, I don't go eat. And so sometimes what God does, he's allowing trials and difficulties and adversities so that we go and eat. You follow? Sometimes he's giving us those grumblings in our stomach, you know, metaphorically speaking. He gives these grumblings so that to remind us we got to eat because we're not going to make it through the day without eating. And so it's important for us to understand, I want to see what God is doing. So when we ask that question, we have to look at now chapter 4, verse 23. Because now he's about to bring forth the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 23, when it says, when they, rele they were released, they were released from the Sanhedrin, from the high priest, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they were released. It says they went to their friends. Now let me stop there. That word in the Greek is not the word friends. It's not companions. It's not a family member. In fact, the word just says one's own. That's all it means. So the question is, where did they return to? Did they go back to their mother and father to share? Did they go to their friends in the neighborhood to share? Or is it possible, as scholars have looked at, that they truly did go back to the people whom saw, we saw in chapter 1, verse 14, when you look back and you say, they got together and they prayed in one mind. When they were praying in one mind, now they were released and they went back to their brothers and sisters of the 120 and shared and reported what God had done. They went back to their, one, their ones, the ones that they owned, the ones who were near to them, the ones that they were vulnerable and transparent, the ones where they were able to know that when I go back to my brother and sister, I know I'm better together when I go back to them. Not a gossip, not a gossip session, not to judge other people, not to create slander or malice or talk about other people, but simply report what God is doing. So we have to be careful because sometimes we get together and we begin to share with great intentions, but then it starts to get into this gossip fest. 
And we have to be reminded that God's called us to be better together so we can report on what God has done. Because when we heard and we've seen what he's done, we go back to the ones whom we feel connected with, your life group, your people you do life with, your community, because we're better together when we do that. But we're not better together if we take these sessions and start to judge one another. And that's what they did. They didn't go back to judge. They went back to report. And sometimes I think we go back and we unintentionally gossip because we haven't seen or heard what God has done with us. And so we can't share anything, so we feel left out. See, when you feel left out or I feel left out, we got to get back to eating again. Learning to go back to the word, learning to go back to prayer, learning to spend time, learning to be vulnerable and transparent and saying, you know what, I've got to share my struggles with my brother or sister. You're not troubling someone when you share your weaknesses and your difficulties and trials. You're giving them opportunity to bless you. But you, I know it needs to be a safe place, so we have to work on being a safe place. And so for us to do that, we've got to create this unity, this community. We've got to ask God to do that. So in verse 23, they said, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Again, together in unity, in one mind, to God. And it says, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David... For your servants said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were to gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. I want to stop there for a second before going to verse 27 because we talked about who did they report it to and what. We know what they reported because I just shared that and we know who. And we know that it was through that that they were able to work through that. But when they heard, they came together in mutual agreement. They gathered together in one mind. And then there was strength that came from that. But what they did is they came together to bring glory to the master, the creator. The one who has legal control and authority over persons. That's what it means. One who is master over the universe. One who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Because when we know who the creator is and who's the master, then we know who we are. And they humbled themselves because they were in submission and obedience with a teachable spirit. They submitted themselves knowing who is God and who is not. And when they did that, the, the Holy Spirit moved in such a way. But look with me now to verses 25 and 26. This is important because this is Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 2. It's a messianic psalm. And what the psalmist was saying was this. He said, when the Gentiles raged, now you have to understand something. The Gentiles raged up. The kings all around of Israel tried to take Israel down. And they were trying to comb and hover around Israel and to take down God. They were working, common enemies were working together as frenemies in order to take down Israel. And God was doing a work and he was holding them off. And this is what Luke was writing. He was trying to highlight the importance of this. Watch this now. And he, and he uses Psalm 2 verses 1 through 2. And the peoples plotted in vain. Really what the word plot means conspired. They were in anger and rage toward God, leaning toward arrogance, saying we could be bigger than God. 
And the kings of there set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord Almighty, the master of the universe, Elohim, and against his anointed, Jesus, the Messiah. And really what they were saying there, what Luke was saying through the psalmist is, in one sense, they were in one mind, conspiring and raging against God. They were working with one mind. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have to ask myself the question as a pastor for the body of Christ. Are we conspiring together to be right? You ever notice that whenever we're struggling, we tend to lead toward we want to be right over someone else. See, that won't make us better together. And what we have to ask ourselves a question often is, we want to see God to do a work here at Waldorf, at Grace Church. We want to see God do a work that is expanding out, not to explode in the area, to reach out to the world, to outside of these four walls. We have to do it believing God's going to do it through us. We don't do it ourselves. And for God to do it, that means we have to submit ourselves to God, asking him to do that work. And that we don't conspire or work against each other, but we work with each other. Because when that snowflake comes together, when the five fingers come together, it creates a stronger unit. And when the snowflakes come together, it creates a stronger bound. And for us, when we work together rather than against each other, we can be stronger for the kingdom of God. And that's the beauty of, of what God is going to do. So when we're looking at other, cha- other verses, we look at this verse particularly. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, and it says this. But it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So when we have love for each other, we're not conspiring against one another, but we're loving each other truly as God intended to. It's unimaginable what God's going to do through a church. It's unimaginable what lives are going to be changed. It's unimaginable when we're going to see more people coming through these doors. It's unimaginable when we see more lives being changed for the glory of God. But we need to work together because more hands create more unity that creates an explosion in the community. And that's why it's important. So the third question that I have to ask is this. For what did the apostles pray in one mind? Well, uh, maybe they prayed this, remove the persecution, Lord, please remove these people uh, from us, or whatever the case may be. Or maybe you and I are saying this, Lord, remove my persecution. Lord, please remove those people from my work, my boss specifically. Lord, I can't stand this person at work. Please don't make me share Christ with him or her. Or maybe it's, um, or maybe they were saying this, to the high priest, maybe it was James, what if Peter and John said this, please have the high priest and the elders be nice to us and accept this message. Please let them accept us, even if they don't want to trust in your son. I need a break from, from all this trial and this tribulation. Give me some, please, Lord, I'm tired of all these struggles. Is it really going to have to take this long? Well, maybe it's us. Lord, could you just please change them so I, so we don't, I can have some peace and I don't have to deal with people anymore? Just please change them, Lord. I don't want to deal with this stuff. Or maybe it's someone here in this church, someone who's been here for many years and says, Lord, why do we have to have change? Why can't we all like the same thing? Why do we have to, why do we have to be different? Why do I need to change? Or why do, I, why do I need to change? I was here first. Why can't, why can't you make these other people see that I'm the reason why this church has grown? You know, it could be something like that. But see, that's not what they were praying. They weren't praying for God to remove the persecution. They weren't praying for God to change the high priest. They weren't praying for the high priest 
to be nice to them. So this is what they prayed. They prayed for boldness to speak his word in the midst of adversity. They prayed for healing through persecution and trial and adversity. They prayed for the Lord to give them the boldness to speak when people were adverse to them, when they were furious with them, so that God could do miracles through them. They were asking for God to do a work. See, they understood that they wanted God to grow the church, and for God to grow the church, he had to build their faith, and for their faith to be built, they had to grow closer to God in community and closer together, and they knew that the only way for the church to grow is for them to be better together, that the church wasn't going to grow because their preferences were met. The church wasn't going to grow because they sang a certain kind of song. The church wasn't going to grow because everything was liking to them. See, with us as a church, we can't be spectators. We have to be participators. And if we're coming in with the aspect that we're supposed to be ministered to all the time, then the church is never going to grow. And we expect to come in here never praying, never seeking God, never worshiping before we come here, then how in the world we're going to expect God to expect us to worship when we get here? See, we have to be participators in worship, participators in a lifestyle of worship. We've got to be the ones that say, God, even through this trial, this difficulty, use this for your honor and your glory and your praise. Let someone come to faith in Jesus through my life. That even when it comes, even though we may react momentarily, we can say, God, I know I need to respond now to you and to others. See, God wants to do that work. And see, this is what happened. This is what they said. Let me read verses 27 through 31, and when I do, there are three results that happened here. Let me just read just for just a moment here. Verses 27, it says, For truly in this city, as they were praying, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. They were praying, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed throughout the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Courage upon courage. Here are the three results. It's really simple. Verse 31, God exposes his power, shaken ground. Can you imagine being there? If it was there in the first century, they began to pray and the ground was shaken. It's literal. It's translated literal. It was in a metaphor. It was shaken. It was an earthquake. God was moving the ground because he was pleased. To know that his people were together with one mind, not looking to each other for common interests or preferences, not conspiring against each other, but they were together in one mind for the glory of God, for the, for the Christ child, for the one who came, and for the one who died, for the one who went who seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what they came in common ground, to know that Jesus saved them. And they came together with one common mind. They didn't look at each other and saying, I don't like the way she wears her hair. I don't like her. I don't like the way that dude talks. I don't like him. I don't like the way that person walks. Did you see that person? I'm like, they stop that and they say, wait a minute, who cares what they look like? Who cares what they say? Let's get together in Jesus' name and come in one accord and one mind and say, let's see the shake in the ground. 
Let's see it shake, baby. When I'm praying, I just want it to shake because I don't want to stay still. I want God to move my, my flooring under me so that people's lives will be changed. I want to see transformation, but we're not going to do it without prayer. We're not going to do it if we're not tired because if we're exhausted, it's all for the glory of God. I'm beating myself to a ground to make sure our house is together. Why? For the glory of God. Why? You might say, wait a minute, for you're going, no. Because the scripture tells me to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I'm not doing this for myself. I can care less. I can live in a cardboard box and be happy there as long as I can pray and have my word. But I can assure you this, I'm doing it for the glory of God. And my wife doesn't want these things because she needs them. It's just husbands were called to that, to love our wives. And so the beauty of it is that it's not about me and it never will be. But I've got to learn that because it's hard to learn. I'm 22 and a half years, and I'm still learning that. My wife can attest to that. Because if it were up for me, it would be all about me. But God is moving in a way. We have to tire ourselves for the kingdom of God because it's not about us. And we got to get over ourselves, and I'm learning that. It's called learning. That's a key word. I'm learning. And my wife has to learn a lot more than I do because she has to put up with me. But the beauty of it is that we learn when we are selfless, crying out to God, doing a work. Secondly, when he exposes his presence, the promise of the Holy Spirit is there. And lastly, when he exposes, God exposes his protection, courage to speak against even those who fiercely oppose God. Real quick in a story um, from the book Radical, uh, David, uh, David Platt uh, was uh, in uh, Radical in a book, and he wrote a story about he was in Indonesia in a country with the largest Muslim population in the world, teaching in an Indonesian seminary. Before they graduate, uh, the students in the seminary were required to plant a church. And with at least 30 new baptized believers in a Muslim country, one brother, Raiden, shared his testimony with a fiery look in his eye. He said, before I became a Christian, I was a fighter. I learned ninja jiu-jitsu and a variety of other techniques for taking people down. I nodded, and this is David Platt speaking, I was making a mental note, don't mess with Raiden. And he continued, one day I was sharing the gospel with an unreached village. This was Raiden speaking, and the witch doctor from the village came to the house and called me out. He wanted me to fight him. Radon smiled and he confessed. My first thought was to walk out there and take the witch doctor down. But when I turned to go outside, the Lord told me I no longer needed to do the fighting. God would do the fighting for me. So Radon worked, walked outside, pulled up a chair, sat down in front of the witch doctor, and he told his challenger, I don't do the fighting. My God does the fighting for me. Radon recounted what happened next. As the witch doctor attempted to speak, he began to gasp to air for air. He was choking, couldn't breathe. People came running to see what was wrong, and within a few minutes, the witch doctor had fallen down dead. Now, the entire village had crowded around the scene. A few minutes around the scene, Radon said, I had never seen anything like this. And I didn't know what to do. But then I thought, I guess this would be a good time to preach the gospel. So what, that's what he did. And many people in the village trusted in Christ for the first time that day. Platt continues. He goes, he goes, now I'm not recommending this is a new church growth methodology. Making pronouncements on people that lead their, to their deaths doesn't seem to be the best way to go about things. 
But this story was a clear reminder that to me that 2,000 years ago, what believers proclaimed the name of Jesus, it caused the blind to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise. I want to encourage you today. God is a God of miracles. God is a God of work. God is a God where he wants to do a work in us. And I want to encourage you right now as your heads are bowed and we're entering into communion. God wants to do a work in each of us. But we have to surrender to him to be better together. So I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to pray that God would begin to do a work in us to confess our sin, to ask him to do a work that only he can. God, I want to thank you. You're an awesome God. We want to praise you, Lord, because you're so awesome that you care for us, that you sent your son Jesus. Thank you for showing us that being better together is ridding of ourselves and doing something for you. You teach us through marriage. You teach us through our children. You teach us through peers. You teach us through any kind of relationship, brothers and sisters in Christ, of how we're better together when we give up our own preferences and our common interests and come in one mind and one heart with you. So Lord, as we enter into communion, encourage us this moment to be challenged of the importance of what your son did for us in the cross, that he was broken, that his body was broken for us, that he was willing to give everything up for your kingdom's sake. And I pray, Lord, as we enter into communion, may I pray that you would help us to reflect on you and your son that he was willing to die for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Before we come up and to receive the elements, let me just share a few things real quick. If you are here with your family, which you are with your children, I want to invite you to come up with your children. Um, but if they don't know Jesus, you can let that pass. But if they have come to faith in Christ, I would encourage you to welcome them into this communion, explain to them shortly what that means. And the beauty of it is to understand this, children. It's really simply this. Jesus died on the cross, and he died in your place and in mine for sin. And now when you trust in Jesus, now you have forever with him, forgiven of your sin and having a relationship with him. And so we want to encourage you to consider that. So parents, as we're doing that, we want to talk about that, the importance of the body, the importance of the blood of Jesus and the importance of redemption, importance of that Jesus had to die so that we could have life, and that there's life in the blood, and that through the blood of Christ, we could have newness of life. So I want to encourage you, as you come to get the elements, I want to encourage you to pray, to confess your sin, to, to reflect on the goodness of God, and then shortly after we have that moment, we'll come together, pray, and dismiss. So I want to just give you that opportunity to come forth and take the elements and reflect on God's goodness to us. Guilty I'm guilty was all that I could say Mercy Your mercy Crashing like a wave And all my sin was washed away Washed away You 
This is a common practice in the church that we do as an ordinance, but we come together to be reminded that the elements are here to represent the body and the blood of Jesus. That is our faith. That is our Christian faith. That's what we hold on to, the person and work of Jesus. We know what he did to sacrifice himself for us, and we come together with this understanding that as he instituted this at his last supper with his disciples, I want to read in uh, just an 
episode here and a pericope here in, in Matthew 26, 26. It says this, now that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until this that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's do that together as a body of Christ here at Grace Church. Father, we are thankful today. Thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you for reminding us of the importance of what we have in Christ that he was willing to die, willing to die as the innocent lamb, willing to sacrifice his own life for your kingdom's sake. Thank you for the blood, the, the blood that gives us life, the blood that today has the power of the blood of Jesus still remains in our sanctification. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to shed his blood for remission of sin. And I pray that your spirit would move in us to be reminded of how important it is for us to be better together for your sake. Dismiss us with your grace and your love and your mercy. And thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a great week.